I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Looking for an object in the British Museum to serve as an emblem for this talk, I came across the bronze medal of Erasmus made in Antwerp in 1519 by the artist Quentin Metzis. On the front of the medal, there is a portrait of Erasmus in profile. On the reverse, the smiling bust of Terminus, the Roman god of boundaries, and the words concedo nulla, I yield to no one. It's said that Erasmus kept a figurine of the god Terminus on his desk. He wrote, Out of a profane god I have made myself a symbol exhorting decency in life, for death is the real Terminus that yields to no one. Intellectual and Wagner under the watchful eye of the god Terminus seemed like a very good idea. As a tutelary spirit, he might help set limits to an impossibly large subject, as well as reminding me not to keep you here all night. But if it has been prudent to keep the god in mind, it has also seemed appropriate, since like anyone who has spent time thinking about Wagner, I have inevitably come back to the subject of boundaries and limits, and in particular to questions about the boundary that lies between Wagner's works and his listeners and about the experience, apparently not uncommon, of that boundary becoming blurred or even disappearing altogether. An experience that may hold a clue to the feeling, also not uncommon, that Wagner's work is in some sense not altogether good for us. It's hard to imagine Wagner keeping a statuette of Terminus on his desk except to mock Respecting boundaries was not his thing. Transgression he took in his stride, stealing other men's wives when he needed them, borrowing money from people without bothering to pay it back, while artistically his ambitions knew no bounds. There's something quite awe-inspiring about his productivity under hostile conditions. The way, though living on the breadline, he turned out masterpieces when there was no reasonable prospect of any of them being performed. Gigantic works which pushed singers and musicians to the limits of their technique while taking music itself to the edges of its known universe. Theft, the breaking of vows, promises and contracts, seduction, adultery, incest, disobedience, defiance of the gods, daring to ask the one forbidden question, the renunciation of love for power, genital self-mutilation as a price of magic. Wagner's work is everywhere preoccupied with boundaries set and overstepped, limits reached and exceeded. Meanwhile, Wagnerian, has passed into our language as a byword for the exorbitant, the overscaled, and the interminable. As a non-negotiable deadline, a terminus ad quem, the date of this talk on Wagner kept me awake at night. Sleepless, I turned my thoughts to Tristan and Isolde, Wagner's most extreme work, and a necklace ultra of love stories. And I noticed a kinship between aspects of Tristan and Isolde's passion and the experience of a certain kind of insomnia, 
The second act of Tristan and Isolde is Romanticism's greatest hymn to the night. Not for the elfin charm and ethereal chiaroscuro of moonbeams and starlight, the territory of Chopin and Debussy, but night as a close-bosomed friend of oblivion, a simulacrum of eternity and a place to play dead. Insomnia is a refusal to cross the boundary between waking and sleeping, a bid to outwit Terminus by hiding away in soundless dark, a zone beyond time. As garlic is to vampires, so clocks are to insomniacs, not because they tell of how much sleep has been missed, but because they bring the next day nearer. As Philip Larkin, poet of limits, knew so well, sleep has the one big disadvantage that we wake up from it. In time, the curtain edges will grow light, he wrote in Obard, bringing unresting death one day nearer now. For Tristan and Isolde, too, night must not give way to day, not for the trivial reason that day will end their lovemaking, the reason that John Donne's lover berates the sun as a busy old fool, but because dawn brings death one day nearer. They must stay awake, for to sleep is to allow the night to pass, to awake from the night is to live, and to live is to die. And when inevitably day dawns, they have only one recourse. To Tristan and Isolde, in their delirium, it seems that by dying, they will preserve their love forever. By dying, they will defy death. Tristan and Isolde's need to stay awake is embodied in the opera's famous prelude, perhaps the most quoted and analysed piece in the history of Western music, and a gift to musical semiotics because of the way it withholds closure. The usual thing to say about this, and Wagner said something along these lines himself, is that the music enacts the experience of desire, forever on the verge of satisfaction but never satisfied, a state of suspension symbolised by the first three bars, which resolve the startling discord of bar two, the so-called Tristan chord, onto a dominant seventh, itself a chord crying out for resolution. But we can also read this reluctance to resolve as the musical equivalent to staying awake, a bid to suspend the passage of time in which sleep gratefully acquiesces. In tonal music, a final cadence is an acceptance that things end and are released into process. The prelude to Tristan and Isolde avoiding final cadences, refuses to sleep. I'm going to play you the first 17 bars. I shall be talking a lot in this lecture about the way we take in Wagner's music and the way it takes us in. So I would like to suggest that as you listen to this, as well as attending to the expressive qualities of the music, you notice how clearly Wagner enunciates his musical argument and how easy the grammar is to follow as he takes the material of the first three bars through a series of iterations, with changes of register, instrumental color, phrase contour, and harmonic position, creating difference within similarity. Notice, too, how the interrupted cadence with which the passage ends gently forbids us to leave the musical line.
difficulties and disasters dogged Tristan and Isolde from the start, and the Wagner certainly came to be thought of as in some way cursed. The attempt at the first production of Vienna in 1862 foundered. The demands the opera made on players and singers were too much for them, and the production was abandoned after 77 rehearsals. The planned public premiere in Munich in 1865 had to be postponed for a month, when Malvina Schnorr, who was singing Isolde, lost her voice on the morning of the first performance after taking a vapour bath. Relations between the orchestra and the conductor, Hans von Bülow, grew strained. Franz Strauss, father of Richard, and the brilliant first horn of the Munich orchestra, had a blazing row with von Bülow, stomped out of the pit and had to be coaxed back. Ludwig Schnorr von Karelsfeld, who sang Tristan to his wife's Isolde, caught a chill on stage and subsequently died. <laughs> on his deathbed, he is said to have called out Wagner's name. <clears throat> his wife abandoned her career after his death. I drove you to the abyss, Wagner wrote in his diary. I pushed him over. Four years later, during rehearsals for a revival of the first production, one of von Bülow's young assistants had a mental breakdown, apparently brought on by the opera and was institutionalised. In 1907, Felix Mottl collapsed and died while conducting Tristan and Isolde, and Josef Kyle-Bett met the same end in 1968. We enjoy these stories about Tristan and Isolde, I think, because they indulge our wish to find in Wagner someone prodigious, to see him as a Faustian genius who gave two fingers to the god Terminus. We know, of course, that Tristan and Isolde has never killed anyone. That Ludwig Schnorr could just as well have caught a mortal chill while singing Maya Beer or Rossini. <laughs> Nonetheless, the power of this opera is such that great performances of it leave listeners stunned and disorientated, uncertain about the status of what it is that they have witnessed. Intelligent, formidably intelligent people describe Tristan in terms of a conversion experience. Could Tristan, quote, announce a new religion, asks Michael Tanner? While for Roger Scruton, Tristan Nisolde offers nothing less than, quote, a sacrificial consolation for the imperfect lives of those who witness it, quote, a kind of proof that we can transcend our mortal condition. In the early days, the expressionistic intensity of Tristan and Isolde produced violent reactions in the audience. The young Belgian composer, Guillaume Lequeur, fainted and had to be carried out of the theatre. Paul Lequeur was to die of typhoid from eating a contaminated sorbet a day after his 24th birthday. Chabrier and Ravel both burst into tears while listening to the Tristan prelude, but Berlioz, while reviewing the opera positively, privately admitted to being disgusted by the music, and the opera became associated in some quarters with a loss of self-control and an atrophy of moral fibre. It acquired a reputation as degenerate, as what the Germans would later call, applying the term to a very different kind of music, Entartete Kunst. Thomas Mann was to satirise this attitude in Buddenbrooks, where Edmund Pfuhl, the local organist, refuses to play excerpts from Tristan because of the music's immorality. I cannot play that, my dear lady, he says to Gerda. I am your most devoted servant, but I cannot. That is not music, believe me, this is chaos. This is demagogy, blasphemy, insanity, madness. It is a perfume fog shot through with lightning. It is the end of all honesty and art. I will not play it. In Robert Musil's The Man Without Qualities, Ulrich's friend Walter rebuffed by his wife Clarissa, who has wriggled out of his embrace and, munching a cheese sandwich, has gone off into the garden to hunt for moths in the dark, <laughs> seeks solace in music. Walter's tenderness collapsed like a souffle taken too soon from the oven. 
He heaved a deep sigh. Then he hesitantly sat down at the piano again and struck a few keys. Willy-nilly, his playing turned into improvisations on themes from Wagner's operas. And in the splashing of this dissolutely tumescent substance, he had refused in the days of his pride. His fingers cleared a path and gurgled through the fields of sound. Let them hear it far and wide. The narcotic effect of this music paralysed his spine and eased his fate. Just to remind you what it is about Tristan that got people so worked up, I thought I'd play a very brief extract from Act Two of the opera, illustrating what one might call its borderline aspect. For getting on for 17 minutes, Isolde has been waiting in a state of increasingly agitated anticipation for Tristan to turn up for their secret night time rendezvous. This is the moment when he arrives. I remind you that this, that this scene carries on for another 40 minutes <laughs> at, at a level of scarcely uh, lesser intensity before the final climax, which we shall arrive at in about 40 minutes at the end of this lecture. So you can imagine them continuing to sing like this for the meantime. In the first decades after Wagner's death, attacks on his music often reflected contemporary models of the psyche and their preoccupation with hysteria not surprisingly, Nietzsche, who set the ground rules for all future combat with Wagner's work, in part constructs Wagner's music in terms of its effect on the nerves. Wagner is a great corrupter of music. With it, he found the means to stimulate tired nerves, and in this way, he made music ill. Wagner increases exhaustion. Therefore, he attracts the weak and exhausted to him. And inevitably, of course, for Nietzsche, it's Wagner's success with nerves that explains his success with women. This may all seem very much of its time, and it's true that these days it tends to be men who get hysterical about Wagner rather than women, but the old tropes still surface. Published less than 18 months ago, Peter Conrad's long book, Verdi and or Wagner, happily revisits Nietzsche's dichotomy between the fog-bound and mephitic enervating music of the North, Wagner, and the life-giving vitality and pagan health 
of the music of the Mediterranean, with a difference only that he substitutes Verdi for Bizet. Quote, I associate Wagner with periods of post-adolescent gloom. Wagner induced a delicious listlessness, but an excerpt from Verdi could be relied on to activate my sluggish body. If Wagner was a drug, then Verdi was, in my experience, tonic. I have a feeling Verdi's music is good for us. Only last year, Thomas Odess described Wagner's music as fungal, characterising his influence on the composers who followed him as, quote, finding his grubby fingerprints everywhere. Fungal is, in one sense, rather a good image for the modular patterning of Wagner's music, but it also suggests infestation, decay, sickness, and a tendency to spread uncontrollably, while the phrase grubby fingerprints brings to mind something insalubrious, if not criminal. It can sometimes seem that the history of reaction to Wagner has been self-sustaining, a ritual tradition of colourful hyperbole, unsupported for the most part by any explanation as to how exactly the music comes to have the power ascribed to it. And this is perhaps scarcely surprising. For our sense of the character of any music always closely involves its emotional tone. And in music, emotional tone is largely determined by harmonic idiom. But we have no shared tools for analysing the expressive and semantic content of harmony. Any acquaintance with the literature of music aesthetics shows how far we still are from agreeing a theory of musical meaning or expression. So when Nietzsche declares the tone of Parsifal to be saturated with bogus religiosity, but Debussy finds it sublime, and when Bernard Williams has serious qualms about the tone of Siegfried's funeral music, but Daniel Barenboim thinks that it's noble, on what possible grounds can we adjudicate these differences? This difficulty we have tying non-musical meanings back to the notes on the page has a, a direct bearing on the fraught question of the association of Wagner's works with national socialism. And in my view, it makes the arguments that surround this topic convoluted and unsatisfactory. For this reason, I shall merely skirt the topic here, also because the subject of Wagner and the Nazis is too big to be fitted meaningfully into a general lecture on the composer, and especially a lecture whose main focus is the music, rather than the ideological content of the work, such as that can be construed. Music is a promiscuous and adhesive medium. As soon as you introduce powerfully expressive music into the vicinity of words, images, and ideas, it jumps the gap and attaches itself to them, as Wagner, of course, understood better than anyone before or since. A host of circumstances, not least Wagner's own writings, some of them utterly abhorrent, drove his music into the proximity of the most evil political system in the history of Western Europe, that Wagner's work became indelibly associated with German fascism is a fact, whether his music can be understood as a sinister prolepsis of this ideology is another matter altogether. I don't believe we are in a position to make this argument, although the tack I am now going to take may suggest ways of situating Wagner's music within the bigger context of music's amenability to exploitation for political purposes. I would like now to turn away from the what of Wagner's music to the how, picking up on the word demagogy, which Thomas Mann's fictional character Edmund Pfuhl throws out in the course of his tirade. 
If there is a common denominator to the attacks on Wagner's works as bad for us, it is the idea that it causes a loss of self-control or volition in the listener. That in representing emotional states beyond normal bounds, it lures us into those states. So that we lose what Auden calls our dream of safety. People dislike Wagner, wrote Hans Keller, because he makes them have evil thoughts. As usual, Keller didn't go into saying what these evil thoughts might be or what in Wagner's music corresponds to them. But perhaps the really interesting question here concerns not the thoughts, but the being made to have them. Music is capable of influencing our physical, mental and emotional state far more directly than any other art form. Our ears are open in a way that our eyes are not. We cannot listen away as we can look away. With music, the question of distance is therefore an essential question. Where are we and where is it? Where does it stop and where do we begin? Which feelings belong to the music and which feelings belong to us? In Thomas Mann's essay, The Sorrows and Grandeur of Richard Wagner, the essay which was the proximate cause of Mann's hasty departure from Germany in 1933, he caused particular outrage for the Nazi establishment for saying that Wagner had elevated dilettantism to the level of genius. Mann speaks of romanticism as being uninterested in what he calls the pathos of distance. In one respect, this is easy to see what he means. In the first decades of the 19th century, composers took an increasing interest in the sensational dimension of music, its capacity to have an impact, to make a big and splendid noise. As the century advanced, orchestras grew in size and power to accommodate the imaginings of composers intent on exploring acoustic extremes. Distance is, to an extent, a function of scale. And while the pathos of distance is important in our relationship with the musical miniatures that represent one side of the romantic achievement, nocturnes, songs without words, and preeminently, of course, songs with words, the large-scale orchestral works that typify the other side of romantic music amount to a concerted bid to break down the distance between music and the audience. Wagner was quite open about wanting to change the consciousness of his listeners. And he knew better than anyone how to harness the power of the new forces of musical impact that were at his disposal. At the height of work on Tristan and Isolde, he wrote to Mathilde Wesendonck that he feared that good performances of the work would drive people mad. And as we have seen, he was spot on. And he told Hans von Bülow that he wanted his listener to give himself, quote, unresistingly to the work such that he, quote, involuntarily assimilates even what is most alien to his nature. Wagner had no interest in the pathos of distance. The state in which Wagner found the art of opera in the middle of the 19th century did not please him. He deplored its tired routines and he swept them away. Where a traditional opera typically hauled itself along through a series of arias, duets and ensemble pieces strung along a line of recitative, Wagner integrated words, drama, and music into a discourse of continuous gesture. This did a lot to dismantle the structures which, in traditional opera, keep the audience at a distance from the action. In an opera by Rossini or Donizetti, we hop from one aria or duet or ensemble to another, negotiating an archipelago of self-sufficient pieces of music, and this acts as a kind of Brechtian Verfremdungseffekt, repeatedly ejecting us from the narrative, 
a consequence once made even more pronounced by the custom of applauding individual numbers as though they were concert items. Wagner replaced this singing of pieces of music with a free declamatory vocal style, embedding his singers in the fabric of the drama and rarely permitting them to sing at the same time as each other. In his mature operas, the ebb and flow of the action is controlled by music, which Wagner himself characterized as endless melody, which loosens the certainties of diatonic harmony and gives a wide berth to effects of unwanted closure in the musical syntax. As a result, the listener is given only rare opportunities to bail out of the musical and dramatic argument. It's a central aspect of Wagner's genius, which Thomas Mann writes wonderfully about, that he conceived a way to draw towards each other the literary and musical components of his operas. Wagner's understanding of the ideographic potential of music, the capacity of music to suggest things, characteristics and ideas, was something quite special to him. And it probably partly accounts for our sense of his work as in certain fundamental respects different from most other music in the classical canon. The movement towards each other of the musical and the literary in Wagner's art is obviously most clearly to be read in the leitmotifs, the thematic cells and musical phrases used in his mature operas to characterize people, places, things, and ideas. Debussy dubbed the leitmotifs, or at least some of them, calling cards. And most recently, Thomas Odess has said of them that while he can see that they are, quote, obviously useful markers for someone in an opium haze, he himself finds them embarrassing a kind of pantomime theatre. They're absurd, he goes on, stuck on like post-it notes to remind you what things are, but they aren't part of the organic life of the music, the veins and tissues of the music. On the other hand, for Pierre Boulez, it is precisely the organic nature of Wagner's development of the motifs in the ring, which is a source of admiration and respect. On this, I think I'm with Boulez, Rather than treating the leitmotifs as a handy glossary where we can look up meanings and identifications as we travel through the Wagnerian landscape, we would do better to think of them as staking out a kind of semantic middle ground between music and drama. Wittgenstein called them musical prose sentences. As the works unfold, the listener moves continuously and fluidly between the music on the one hand and the drama on the other, holding them in a kind of dynamic equilibrium in the mind. The patterned integration of the leitmotifs into the musical fabric, like small marine fossils in the makeup of certain kinds of sedimentary rock, symbolizes the accumulation of experience over time. It was this aspect of Wagner that so excited Proust. And of course, as a formal device, the leitmotifs helped Wagner give coherence and unity to immense spans of musical narrative. Wherever we surface in the onward stream of these operas, whether listening to them or reading them in score, we see a landscape of familiar forms, though always subtly evolving and combining in a kaleidoscope of shifting permutations. The words often used to describe the effect of Wagner's work, seduction, irresistibility, enchantment, and so on, and the way Wagner has himself spoken of as a magician, a sorcerer, a trickster, suggest dark and inscrutable arts. And given that the stories he tells and the music through which he tells them are full of emotional drama, at times extreme, we might assume that his power derives from his passion, and that if we feel a loss of will in the face of his work, this is because we have been overwhelmed and swept away by a volcanic lava stream of expression, 
or irradiated by a blast of psycho-spiritual energy. Or, and this is perhaps the most common trope of all in the Wagner literature, drugged. Echoing an observation of Thomas Mann's, Pierre Boulez has said of Wagner that, quote, his genius was both hot-headed, even irrational, and extremely analytical. It is the analytical side of Wagner's genius that I want to focus on here. Bertolt Brecht said that Wagner's art creates fog, and Tolstoy thought you could achieve the same effect more quickly through getting drunk or smoking opium. But what has always struck me about Wagner's work, certainly the seven mature operas, is not that they enthrall us through bewilderment or narcosis, but how unnervingly intelligible they are and how, in being so intelligible, they hold our attention, and in holding our attention, draw us ineluctably in. We've looked briefly at some of the features of Wagner's style that make it easy for us to orientate ourselves in his work and engage closely with it. Now, we might think that Wagner had to make things crystal clear because his imagination insisted on drawing everything out to such length. The danger of losing us would otherwise have been too great. But I'm inclined to turn this on its head and say that it is the length of his operas that allows them to be so intelligible. In Wagner, size matters. Of all the variables in his art, it matters most. This is what Nietzsche meant when he said that Wagner hands us a magnifying glass. In Wagner's mature operas, music and drama collaborate intuitively. Musical time and dramatic time do not naturally synchronize. We are better at taking in complex stories than complex music. So Wagner takes care to slow down the pace of his narratives, building them out of large, simply structured sections which reduce foreground content and accentuate abstract underlay. Long passages of debate between characters about very clearly etched issues, question and answer routines that recall fairy tale storytelling, picture book incidents and journeys all help to create a roomy space within which the music can breathe. Reciprocally, the music works to control the tempo of the action. In a play, there is a limit to how slowly, or indeed how fast, the dialogue can be delivered. Pauses and silences have to be used carefully. In Wagner, the music either speeds up the dialogue to increase emotional intensity, as, for example, in that extract we just heard when Tristan arrives for his night of love with Isolde, or, more typically, the music pours into the mould of the opera, flowing between the elements of the drama and pushing them apart, stretching them out. We could think of this process as like the inflation of a balloon with a picture on it. As the air inflates the balloon, the marks that define the picture move outwards and away from one another as the picture grows to its full size. It's as though Wagner were writing the story in very large letters, or reading it out very, very slowly. We take the action in, in big temporal arcs, several times longer than we would experience in a play using the same dialogue. For example, the dramatic action of the first scene of Die Valkyrie takes four times as long in Wagner's opera as it would if you simply read it aloud. In scene two, the factor of augmentation is three, and the third scene takes only twice as long as it would if read aloud. And this partly explains the sense of increasing pace as the act develops. It's in the use of music to control the narrative flow that Wagner's operas may sometimes remind us of film, where it's the camera work that creates this plasticity. 
To illustrate this is next to impossible in a public lecture because in the nature of things, these remarkable time-shrinking effects play out across such long spans. I'd have loved to have played you the whole of the wonderful dialogue between Brunhilde and Siegmund in Act Two of Die Valkyrie, where Brunhilde tells Siegmund that his time's up. This is a beautiful example of the way Wagner maps narrative structure onto musical argument. The simplicity of the question and answer routine between Brunhilde and Siegmund creating utterly transparent musical paragraphs, while the music lends a profound abstract weight to the emotional essence of the scene. At 11 minutes, the musical treatment takes five times as long as a dialogue would if simply read. I'll play you the orchestral introduction to the scene to give you a sense of the scope of its expressive architecture. In passages such as this one, Wagner's music has an effect on our sense of time that is the reverse of the effect which most music in the classical canon has on us. Where most classical music expands our sense of temporal duration, Wagner's contracts it. Most music, music though short, seems long. Wagner, though long, seems short. Until Wagner, very few compositions, that's to say self-contained pieces of music, so including arias, duets, and ensemble pieces from cantatas, operas, and oratorios, or movements of sonatas and symphonies. Very few pieces of music lasted longer than 15 minutes. The majority, much less than this. 
Music from the classical canon characteristically compresses its content into very short time spans. As you will see, if you watch the digital clock on your music system, as you listen to a motet by Thomas Tallis, or an aria from the St. Matthew Passion or Don Giovanni, a movement from a Beethoven or Webern string quartet, or a Chopin Mazurka or a Schubert or Schumann song. Where in classical music, the exposition of material, that's to say the presentation of musical data to the listener's ear, stands in a very high ratio to passing time. In Wagner's work, this relationship is radically relaxed. He sets out the basic propositions of his musical argument with extraordinary parsimony, letting the line out inch by inch, making absolutely sure we have understood each element in the music before he introduces, introduces another one. The norm in classical music is for dense, vertically integrated hits of musical information, which are cognitively impossible to grasp in their full detail at the time of listening. Wagner spreads out the musical variables horizontally, allowing us all the time we need to register them fully. Now, as a way of illustrating the high distinctive character of Wagner's compositional procedures, I'm going to play you the first minute or so of the operas of the Ring, prefaced by the first minute of four operas by other composers, all of them written within the force field of Wagner's immense influence, and yet, in key respects, resisting it. First, the four non-Wagnerian operas. Here I want you to measure the release of musical information against the clock, which will appear on the screen, noticing the degree of compression in the material. That's to say how much we are asked to take in in this space of a minute and how the extreme density of the exposition creates a distance between us and the music, rebuffing us, as it were, with its complexity. Or, in the phrase of Adorno, its simultaneous multiplicity. First, Carmen, the work that Nietzsche used to beat Wagner over the head with. Notice how, by the time the minute is up, we've had three full statements of the opening theme, plus a contrasting second subject. <laughs> Second, Verdi's Falstaff, propelled into the thick of it by an exuberantly syncopated opening phrase. Within 15 seconds, we are in the middle of a bust-up between Dr. Caius and Falstaff. And by the end of this first minute, we have a complete working picture of the protagonist of the opera. Fat, drunken, havoc-raising, insouciant and splendid. 
both these openings, the effect of a large orchestra in full spate is like a firework display, an explosion of energy, light and colour, but emphatically a spectacle, dazzlingly external to us. There's so much going on and in such a small space that like a landscape rushing past us in a train, though all of it registers with us somewhere in our brains, we will be hard-pressed if asked a moment later to describe more than a few salient features. Next, Der Rosenkavalier. Again, notice the density in this first minute in the contrapuntal overlay of thematic material and the speed of change in the harmony. Finally, Wozzeck by Alban Berg, the most compressed of the four. The intricacy of the musical construction here is matched by an extraordinarily rapid exposition of dramatic and emotional content. By the end of a minute, the structure of class oppression around which the whole opera is built has been laid down. In Wozzeck's Jawohl, Herr Hauptmann, the utter hopelessness of his Untertan position is summed up. While the captain, frill and hysterical, finds space to elaborate a miniature paranoid disquisition on the nature of time. Langsam, Wozzeck, langsam. Eins nach dem anderen. Er macht mich ganz schwind. Was soll ich denn mit den zehn Minuten anfangen, die er heute zu früh fertig wird? Watzig bedenkt er, er hat doch seine schönen 30 Jahre zu leben. 30 Jahre macht 
260 Monate und erst die Tage, Stunden, Minuten. Was will er denn mit der ungeheuren Zeit mal anfangen? Teil er sich ein, Wozzeck? Jawohl, Herr Hauptmann. These four openings leave us in no doubt about where we stand. In Falstaff and Wozzeck, we become sudden spectators of a drama in midstream, emphatically pushed onto the outside. Carmen and their Rosenkavalier present us with pieces of music fully formed and clearly separate. With the exception of the Meistersinger, where Wagner reverted to some extent to older forms, Wagner's later operas do not so much start as just appear, as if out of nowhere. Tristan and Isolde, the Four Ring Operas, and Parsifal open with next to no discernible meter or pulse, so that where we stand in relation to this music becomes radically unclear. We just find ourselves in it. At the same time, Wagner feeds us only so much musical nutrient as we can comfortably metabolize, so that our absorption into the material is not in any way disturbed by feelings of incomprehension. The most famous of these openings is, of course, the truly astonishing opening of Das Rheingold, where the idea of the origins of things is depicted through the elaboration of a chord of E-flat major over 136 bars. That's four minutes of one chord. We now have the first minute. If the opening of Das Rheingold asks of us only that we take in the chord of E-flat, the first minute of Die Valkyrie taxes us with scarcely more than the note D, buzzing and surging around our heads like an angry swarm of very large bees.
After the opening of Siegfried, Wagner planes down the leading edge of the opera to a bare sliver, a scarcely audible timpani roll on a low F, setting up an almost imperceptible pedal on the dominant of B-flat minor, which acts like a vacuum pulling us forward into the body of the work. Apart from this F, we are given only three other musical items to take stock of. A sequence of falling sevenths played by bassoons and thirds, a simple stepwise rising figure played by the tuba, and a reinforcement of the F pedal played by the violas and emphasised with an accented grace note turn. So we have three shapes, each defined by instrumental colour, one falling, one creeping upwards, the third static. We recognise the opening of Goethe Demerung as a reprise of the music announcing Brunhilde's awakening, but here transposed down a semitone and so darker and more disturbing. Again, all that we are required to grasp are two chord progressions, that's E-flat minor followed by C-flat major, and then E-flat minor followed by D-flat minor, and two types of articulation. The E-flat minor chords are stark, single and bare, the two subsequent chords are rippling and emollient. Play the first minute of a Wagner opera like measuring the first foot of a redwood tree is a kind of nonsense. That's part of the point, of course. But to remind you of how Wagner's music accumulates over a longer span, I thought I'd play you the whole of the prelude to Valkyrie, which takes about three minutes. The power and excitement of this introduction is intrinsically dependent on the simplicity of its ingredients. A mood of extreme minatory agitation is created by the thrashing and surging melody in the cellos and basses, 
A relentless pacing up and down the harmonic minor scale of D, held like a force suppressed under the clamp or lid of the octave tremolando D in the violins and violas. Structurally, all that this music does is to move from the tonic to the dominant and back again. But a lot of play with the potential for harmonic clash between the notes of the diminished seventh chord on C sharp and the obsessive pedal on D, plus a gradual ratcheting up of the pulse, notably during a wonderfully effective stretto three-part canon strings at two beats distance, leads to an explosive climax on the dominant, a timpani thunderclap letting loose a sequence of descending woodwind and brass fanfares of the kind that Adorno was very snooty about, and a gradual subsidence back to where we started. The collapse of tension here is almost more extraordinary in its build-up, as Wagner creates the effect of a sudden drop in atmospheric pressure. It's almost as if the string players are tuning, them, tuning down their instruments as the line loses energy. The simplicity of the musical components allows us to feel that it is we who are at the controls of this infernal machine. Its drive is our drive, and this is the authentic Wagnerian experience.
most tonal music is structured by tensions moving towards a climax and away again, whether at the level of individual phrases, paragraphs, or complete pieces. Wagner uses simple waveforms across particularly long stretches of music. He takes us up, and then he takes us down. Or in the case of the prelude to Lohengrin, we start at the top, move through a progressive thickening of texture and deepening of register until we reach the climax, and then we return to the thin high perch we started from, like a trapeze artist swooping down through a parabola from one high platform to another. Wagner famously said that composition was the art of transition, and his transitions are indeed things to be wondered at. One of the finest sees Siegfried ascend to Brunhilde's rock through the curtain of fire behind which she is locked in sleep. This is the profoundest emotional transition in the whole of the ring cycle, whatever we may think of Siegfried as a character. And Wagner achieves it through a passage of simply gorgeous, effulgently orchestrated music, which takes us up to a broad high peak and then escorts us down the other side into an entirely new landscape. This majestic descent brings us to a point of almost complete rest, out of which grows a single violin line that sinuously feels its way upwards, like the tendril of some climbing plant searching for a place to attach itself, up and up, until, arriving at its limit, it turns and snakes back down again. The musical line is tethered at either end of its ascent by two statements of the so-called destiny motif, played first in D... and then upper tone in E. The meandering violin line is nothing more than a hugely attenuated ornament on the dominant seventh of D major on the way up and on the way down on the dominant seventh of E. So all we have to think about are two chords and a line that has gone for a walk. And when the gentle state of anticipation induced by the dominant sevenths is finally answered, it's by a chord we have not been expecting, delicately expressive of Siegfried in his new, as yet uncertain, psychological state.
Incidentally, I believe that the conductor George Sell used to give that to people applying for violin posts at the Cleveland Orchestra as an audition piece. <laughs> Arnold Schoenberg, frustrated and we may think naively puzzled by the fact that people found his music difficult, declared that all music is difficult. I think there is a lot to this. When someone complains that they cannot understand atonal music, I am prompted to wonder what intonal music they have understood. On the surface, of course, where melody and harmony follow recognisable routines, we feel we know what is being said. But this familiarity is, I think, a little deceptive, if not indeed a barrier to understanding. The compression of information, characteristic of much great music, the speed at which it passes, the bewildering density and delicacy of its overdetermination makes it difficult in the way that poetry is difficult. Like poetry, music deflects our gaze. When it achieves the condition of semantic complexity to which we give the name of art, music is an elusive medium which we grasp only partially through an endless process of interpretation. Like Hans Sachs in the second act of Die Meistersinger, Silenced by the enigmatic beauty of Walter's prize song, Ich fühl's und kann's nicht verstehen, he says. We feel the beauty of music, but we do not wholly understand it. What I have tentatively argued here is that Wagnerian music drama, the music and the drama and the way they combine, is unusually permeable to our search for coherence. There's a sense in which it gives up its meanings generously, and that this is the result of Wagner's quite exceptional feel for the way that our brains take in musical and dramatic information. When we have been drawn deep into the Wagnerian zone, much as we love the music of Bach and Haydn and Bartok and Berg, the thought of it can seem just a little bit too much like hard work. Wagner's astonishing musical charisma, then, works not just through giving us a great time, not just replying as with rich and varied expressive goodies, but by conferring intelligence on us. He makes us feel we understand. I wonder, though, whether this results in us not just getting too close to him for comfort, an experience which would alone be enough to trigger an impulse to push him away, but that it also leaves us feeling we have somehow incorporated him into ourselves. The word I like best for my own experience of Wagner's work is engross because it not only means to absorb totally, but also to write in large letters, and in Shakespearean usage, to make fat or pregnant. Who has engrossed whom is not clear to me. Have I swallowed Wagner, or has Wagner swallowed me? Whichever it is, the consequences can sometimes seem quite bad, whether it is that like a baby with a bottle with too big a hole in the teat, I have satisfied myself without a residue of want, always an unsettling condition or that in gobbling everything down, I have taken in things I find unpleasant along with those I find delicious. Debussy said that it was, quote, hard to imagine the state to which the strongest brain is reduced by listening for four nights to the ring. It is worse than obsession, it is possession. You no longer belong to yourself. Returning from a Wagner performance in October 1917, Otto Klemperer said to his sister, when I like Wagner, I do not like myself. I think one can go a step further and say that even disliking Wagner is not straightforward. 
There are many composers we may not particularly care for, but this poses no problem because we experience their music as separate from us, as other. They do not tamper with our sense of self. In possessing us, Wagner restricts our freedom to dislike him, since in disliking him, we can find that we are disliking bits of ourselves. And this, after all, is what he set out to achieve. He wanted his listener, you will remember, to abandon himself unresistingly to the work so that, quote, he involuntarily assimilates even what is most alien to his nature. In Art and Its Objects, Richard Volheim proposes that it is, quote, part of the spectator's attitude to art that he should make it the object of an ever-increasing or deepening attention. Simon Weil defined true love as, quote, a pure attention to the existence of the other. Taken together, these formulations suggest a way in which we might find an ethical dimension in our engagement with music, in that in learning to attend to music as other than ourselves, we model other forms of attention, particularly attention to each other. Putting this the other way round, and recalling how Erasmus found in the god Terminus a symbol exhorting decency in life, we might observe that much harm comes from failing to acknowledge boundaries. And as a music that seeks to overrun boundaries, in some sense models other invasions and other grabs for power. I should like to finish where I began, with Tristan and Isolde. For me, this is Wagner's greatest single achievement because it is the one work where his attention seems to be wholly turned away from us towards his subject. The overwhelming intensity of the music in this opera belongs to Tristan and to Isolde, and though we are made to experience it, not in the end to us. Like Brangena, Corvinal, King Marker and Melot and Wagner himself, we stand on the outside looking in. The visionary simplicity of Tristan and Isolde permits us to take it in at a glance, and what we see in this glance is an impossible object. For it seems both large and small, intimate and colossal at the same time. Here it's not a magnifying glass that Wagner gives us, but an electron microscope through which we see, blown up to a size which fills the frame, things that with a naked eye we cannot see at all. Or we could think of it as the musical equivalent of the Large Hadron Collider, an immense musical accelerator built for the sole purpose of detecting the Higgs boson of the universe of love. The particle at the heart of Tristan and Isolde is the word and. In the midst of her ecstatic exchange with Tristan in Act Two of the opera, Isolde suddenly catch, catches sight of the word. But our love, is it not Tristan and Isolde, she asks, perplexed by what would happen if death were to destroy this little word. Andrew Marvell defined love as, quote, the conjunction of the mind and opposition of the stars. And is the conjunction that both connects Tristan and Isolde and separates them. The story of Tristan and Isolde is the story of and, and of what happens when the boundary it defends is overrun. In Act Two of the opera, after almost an hour of unrelenting emotional pressure, the little word finally gives way. Tristan and Isolde collapse in upon one another, no longer able to distinguish themselves as separate people. Tristan, you, I, Isolde, no longer Tristan, Tristan babbles. You, Isolde, Tristan, I, no longer Isolde, answers Isolde. Here, music reaches the limits of its power to express feeling, 
and something breaks. I'll play the passage leading up to this catastrophe, where no sooner have Tristan and Isolde become one person, as it were, than King Marka, Isolde's betrothed, and Melot, Tristan's treacherous friend, burst in on them. Save yourself, Tristan, cries Corvenal. <laughs>
As movingly as any music in the entire classical canon, the unconsolable sadness of the music in the second half of Tristan and Isolde tells of infinite passion and the pain of finite hearts that yearn. The final line of Browning's poem, Two in the Campagna, published six years before Wagner completed Tristan, and perhaps the perfect antidote to it. As Browning would know, Isolde's final transfiguration is a beautiful delusion. The god Terminus remains immovable. Consedo nulla, I yield to no one. A final word. In the question, is Wagner bad for us, there's a hint of tiresome passivity, as though we had no choice in the matter. There are substances and there is, and there is substance abuse. It's surely up to us to manage Wagner's charisma, up to us to maintain the and in our relationship with him. I should like to think so. But whether it's really possible to keep Wagner at a distance without losing something essential in our experience of his work is unclear to me. What I do know is that to toy with the idea of Tristan and Isolde as the foundational event in a new religion, or to take it as, quote, a kind of proof that we can transcend our mortal condition, is to turn this great work into a fetish. When we talk like this, the issue is not whether Wagner is bad for us, but whether we are bad for Wagner. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.